Backchat. 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 Politics and current affairs. Backpack. Backchat. Backchat. Your alternative to talk back. It's Saturday, December the 27th, and you're listening to Backchat. We break down the news you don't want to miss. Before we begin today, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the Gadigal land and pay our respects to Elders past, present and future. I'm Chantelle Alcori. And I'm Vanessa Lim. It's our last show of the year, so here's what's coming up in the next 15 minutes. First, you'll hear from journo Jan Fran about Christmas in quarantine followed by ABC reporter Alison Zhao on what New Year's might look like for you. After that, we speak with Macquarie Uni lecturer Lisa Waldeck about rising cases of far-right extremism in New South Wales. And we want to hear from you. How are your Christmas plans disrupted by COVID? Text us in on 0409-945-945 or tweet us at FBI. You're listening to FBI 94.5. So, Vanessa, I don't know about you, but Christmas this year was certainly unique. Just when we escaped the grasp of COVID, the Southern Northern Beaches cluster really put a cork in our plans. For sure. And now, even if you take all the precautions in public spaces, you could still end up in quarantine. This happened to journo and presenter Jan Fran, who spent Christmas in her room this year. Chantelle, you spoke to her earlier about her experiences, right? Yeah, I did. Um, We also spoke about what tricks she learnt to save her sanity while indoors, and it was a great conversation. You can have a listen now. So just for context, Jan, why have you had to spend Christmas in ISO and how much longer do you have left? Well, I have to spend Christmas in ISO because um, I did a really hectic thing and went for lunch. And it turns out that I was in the same restaurant at the same time as someone who was COVID positive. So I was deemed what's called a close contact. And when you're a close contact of a positive person, um, who I don't know, by the way, it's just it's a it's a random person that I wasn't lunching with. Um, when you're a close contact, you have to quarantine for 14 days. And that just happened to be over Christmas. So that's why I'm here talking to you from my bedroom right now. I get out on basically Thursday. So it's midnight Wednesday the 30th, which like, honestly, I have nothing to do at midnight Wednesday the 30th. So I'm still going to be home. So basically by the time Thursday rolls around, I'll be able to leave my house and or have people over. And how have you been coping with spending the holidays without your loved ones? Oh, I've been coping. I guess I've been coping fine. It's It was a massive bummer when I got told about it because um, I didn't expect to have to quarantine over Christmas. I thought it'd be fine. I thought, you know, I could just go get a test and if I'm negative, it's fine. And then I got a call from New South Wales Health and they were like, no, even if you're negative, you still have to quarantine for 14 days because you might actually develop symptoms later. Um, and when I got that phone call, I was so disappointed. Like I, I really was not my best self on the phone <laughs> to the New South Wales Health lady. Like I was pretty much bawling and couldn't really talk and had to pass the phone to my partner because I was just bummed to miss Christmas, you know. It's been a pretty hectic year and I've been looking forward to Christmas with, you know, my partner's family, my family for a while. So I think the hardest thing was just getting over the disappointment and then once you're over the disappointment, you're like, it's totally fine. It's two weeks. We've got everything we need. Just do it. Yeah, and I know you're Lebanese. I'm Syrian, so I can't imagine having to miss out on the feast. (laughs) How did you manage that? Did you get any leftovers? 
Yes, girl, of course I got leftovers. That was the first thing that I organized. I was like, who the hell is gonna drop around here and give me leftovers? We need to we need to coordinate. So yeah, I had a full Lebanese Christmas lunch delivered to my house basically yesterday. Two of my two of my cousins showed up, my sister, and they just had a bag full of like delicious Lebanese Christmas treats. So I've been very well looked after. Um, in that sense. And my mum's like calling like every day, like, what are you eating? You know, <laughs> she thinks I'm dying. I'm like, mum, it's fine. I don't have COVID or I don't think I have COVID. Um, you know, it's, I'm eating everything. There's a thing called delivery. It's fine. I'm not, I'm not starving in my apartment, but you know, she's just a full lab mum and gets really stressed about the food situation. That's good. And I know you posted on Twitter asking for coping strategies. What was some of the best advice that you received during this time? Um, there was a couple. The main one was um, have a routine, which I actually have been doing ever since going into quarantine because otherwise your day just kind of flails out of control and you're sort of just not really doing anything and then you're liable to like, I don't know, like eating bad food and sitting on the couch and not doing anything, which for a few days is fine. But if you do that over two weeks, I would start to feel like shit personally. So someone was like, Make sure you have a good routine, um, you know, try and get up at the same time. Make sure like the, the house, you know, the, the apartment or the area that you live in is sort of like tidy and nice and livable. Download a bunch of good stuff as well, like even if it's books or movies or whatever it is, um, you know, have a good list of stuff that you can watch or listen to, good podcasts. Yeah, I think just kind of um, exercise. That was the other one. Like try, try and keep you know physically sort of healthy and luckily I do have a treadmill on my balcony which we kind of went full COVID in March like full apocalypse mode and got a treadmill and put it on the balcony when everything was going down so we still have that from the first wave back in March and it's actually come in really handy. What would be your message to other Sydney siders who are going through the same thing? Oh you know I'm, I'm conscious that there are people who actually have it far worse than I do. There are people who are in hotel quarantine which would suck so much over this Christmas period because not only are you not with your loved ones but like you're not even in your own home with your own things. So I guess to people who've also had to quarantine over Christmas, it's I just say like you're not alone. There are so many other people doing it. It sucks for so many families across Sydney and also parts of New South Wales. Like just know that there are other people in the same boat so you don't have to feel super bad. Um, and you know what, this too shall pass. And when it does, hopefully you'll be able to actually catch up with your family at some point in the new year. You know, like there's no law that says Christmas has to be on the 25th, except for a religious law that does say that. But if you take that element out of it, you can always see your family um, anytime, hopefully. So fingers crossed that happens in the new year. That was Jerno Jan Fran on having to spend Christmas in quarantine. But now that that holiday is over, all eyes are on the New Year's. What's the go? How many people can we celebrate with? Which spots are we allowed to see the fireworks from? And has Gladys banned a countdown smooch? To break down the latest precautions for our New Year celebrations, we're joined by ABC journalist, journalist Alison Zhao. Hey Alison, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. The 9pm fireworks were axed earlier this year. Is there a chance the midnight ones could be caught off as well? Well, the Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, has guaranteed that fireworks will ring in the new year for Sydney Siders this Thursday. She says the actual display of the seven minutes of fireworks at midnight will be happening no matter what. And that's despite calls from health experts 
for the event to be cancelled. Now, this year, the state government took temporary custodianship of the fireworks, so they're calling the shots instead of the city of Sydney. Uh, some of the calls from health experts include the president of the Australian Medical Association's New South Wales branch. Uh, she said that going ahead with the fireworks was a risk and sending the wrong message and that we all needed to keep our gatherings small because we all know that there is an outbreak happening in Sydney uh, and that if we are going to give contract tracers any hope of keeping on top of that, then we really need to not be encouraging people to gather on foreshores around the harbour or in private homes in larger numbers than is safe to do so right in the middle of an outbreak. And there are certain location zones, right? How are they moderating who's allowed where? So if you go to the government's website, you'll see they've established what's, what they're calling a green zone and a yellow zone. Now, the green zone, those are areas that tra- traditionally people could have watched the fireworks from. So Mrs. Macquarie's chair, the Royal Botanical Garden, and specific areas on the northern side. And those places will all be closed to the general public. So the government's basically saying there's not going to be any open vantage points for people to view the harbour. So, uh, and so from 5 o'clock on New Year's Eve, Entry to the green zone is restricted only to people who live inside the zone and their guests, people with confirmed bookings at restaurants, hotels or bars, or workers at those venues. So presumably police will be out in force, making sure that if you're not, uh, um, if you don't have a pass, you won't be allowed into the rock or the circular key area or any of those places in that green zone. And then around that green zone is what they're calling the yellow zone. And so they're saying that parks inside that yellow zone will also be closed. And that yellow zone extends basically from North Sydney down to Town Hall. So if you imagine kind of a, a wider circle, and that extends into uh, the CBD, North Sydney, Balmain East, Potts Point, and Hyde Park. Uh, and so a lot of the parks inside those that yellow zone uh, is, are closed. And so entry to that yellow zone isn't restricted to re- residents or visitors, but if people gather in those areas in large numbers, they might be moved on by police. And of course, we're still waiting to hear about more restrictions that are coming uh, come in the coming days. Right. So most people our age will be planning to hang with friends at a house party this year. So can you remind us how many people are currently allowed to gather indoors? So in Greater Sydney at the moment, uh, the new restrictions that kicked in, uh, they will last until December 30th midnight uh so we don't know exactly what the restrictions are going to be for new year's eve house parties but at the moment uh in greater sydney people are allowed to have 10 people inside their house so 10 visitors in addition to people who already live there and the government has been asking people if you can hold your gathering outside in a back on a balcony veranda or a back garden do that because that's a safer option and then if you live in the northern beaches, obviously you've got a different set of restrictions. You have basically a stay-at-home order. Nobody's allowed into your house. You're not allowed to leave your zone. So that zone is either the north, northern part of the northern beaches peninsula or the southern part of the, southern be- of the northern beaches. Uh, and people are allowed to gather in that zone outdoors for exercise or recreation. But again, those, those restrictions are only in place until December 30th. And the government says they will be announcing uh, New Year's Eve restrictions uh, in the coming days. And in what other ways will New Year's be different this year? Well, it will be very different for all of us, I guess, psychologically. It's usually we gather uh, in big groups 
um, you know, there's no limits on hugging and kissing and seeing everyone. So New Year's Eve is going to be very different. And of course, um, traditionally, we always see people pack, flock to the harbour to watch those brilliant fireworks. And that's definitely something that's going to change. The Premier yesterday said that everybody should assume that they're going to be watching the fireworks from home this year. Uh, She's also said that, for example, these outdoor events, they did flag earlier that frontline workers could be allowed to go to these parks on the foreshore to watch, but that's going to be reviewed as well. Uh, And also hospitality venues, if you were planning to go to a party, if you had tickets, they now uh, have to abide by the four square metre again, even though when they were selling tickets, they might have thought that they could have one person per two square metres. So there's definitely going to be a lot of changes for New Year's. Uh, and, of course, there's going to be thousands of people who are still in quarantine, whether that's hotel quarantine from traveling here from overseas or if people have visited those that long list of venues uh, that's on the New South Wales Health website, those people who are, who are close contact uh, are going to be at their home self-isolated for New Year's Eve uh, and people won't be allowed to go see them. Uh, and of course, if you're, you know, if you're in a vulnerable position, if you have family members who uh, are sick or elderly, that's of course a general anxiety that's going to be hanging over people. And we haven't been able to celebrate Christmas in the traditional way, and New Year's Eve won't be the same either. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, Alison. No worries. That was Alison Jow from the ABC speaking to us about New Year's and COVID. But stick around because up next, we're discussing the threat of far-right extremism here in New South Wales. But first, we've got some Western Sydney drill for you. This one's called No Effect by Hooligan Hefs. Language warning on this one. You're on FBI 94.5. Earlier this month, an inquiry into extremism was announced following concerns of emerging and radicalised far-right extremist groups during the pandemic. In 2016, far-right extremism accounted for 10% of ASIO's counterterrorism caseload. It now makes up for 40% of the cases they deal with. Joining us now is one of the researchers in the first ever study mapping the online activity for right-wing extremists in New South Wales, Lisa Wardek. Lisa, thanks for coming on today. No, thanks for having me. What should we be most concerned about when it comes to far-right extremism in Australia today? Well, that's a really interesting question. So in our report, we identified two main threats. Um, And one of them, obviously, is the threat of violence, a violent act as occurred, say, for example, in New Zealand. But this is a very, ultimately, uh, low risk, um, but obviously high impact. And the other more concerning threat is that what we call the creeping threat, this idea of the normalization of really extreme anti-democratic ideas, narratives, um, communication um, stories that we tell ourselves and how those kind of extreme and anti-democratic messages spread from um, niche platforms into mainstream platforms and mainstream conversation. That is the creeping threat and that is what is of real concern. A lot of right-wing extremists are using social media to recruit young people. In fact, your study found that most New South Wales extremists are males and under 35. How can we protect young people from this type of online behaviour? Well, I mean, that kind of finding is pretty common against all kinds of extremism, but it's not to say that there are female extremists and violent extremists, because there are and there have been. 
Um, the things that we can do to protect ourselves against all types of violent extremism are to have great understanding and respect um, and knowledge of the importance of democratic values, um, the understanding of civics, the understanding that how to have an argument in a way that doesn't offend other people, that it is important to allow people to have different beliefs. This isn't about saying no one can have different beliefs, but it's about understanding how to respectfully engage in democratic debate and discussion and understanding the importance of representative um, democracy, that all people get to have a vote. Um, that all people get to participate in how we govern our country. Those kind of um, understandings um, can help protect. It's also about um, knowledge around science and appreciation of uh, education and understanding truth um, on the internet, what's important, what's, what's real, what's not. Um, cyber literacy, all of these things can help us and maintain our resilience. It's building on the things that we already have. And a teen from Albury was arrested this month after police say he had shared bomb-making instructions and was accessing extreme right-wing material online. Lisa, how common is this among young people right now and should we be worried? Look, the material is always out there and there's always a need to be concerned and vigilant. But there will always be violent extremism. There are always going to be individuals who are attracted um, for multiple complex reasons to um, destroying the societies that we live in and the things that we hold close. And it is important to be vigilant, but we also um, shouldn't go around our lives constantly in absolute terror of another attack. That that feeds into the very kind of aim and agenda of violent extremist organisations who want us to react with fear, who want us to react and overreact. Um, and, and in fact, by doing that overreaction, potentially undermine the values that we hold dear. So it is a threat. The statement you made by ASIO highlights that the threat does exist. It is a growing threat. It is something that we should be aware of. But equally, we shouldn't do the things that we've done in the past with violent extremism, stigmatise communities, stigmatise um, groups of people, um, securitise issues. That, that isn't helping us in the slightest. Right, so what did you find out about right-wing extremist communities in New South Wales specifically, and what level of risk do they pose? Well, like I said, um, the, what we found was that outside of Facebook, what was actually quite important in the right-wing extremist networks online was individuals and influencers. That group account outside of Facebook, which is a platform which is privileges groups and group activity, Outside of that, while we did see group pages, these weren't really used very much. Now, I should highlight that our study only looked at publicly available material. So if there was a private communication, if somebody changed their, their information to private, we, we couldn't collect that information. And also, all of our information was anonymized at source. We had no understanding of who was posting this information. Um, but we, we, you know, we did find that there was a spread of, of that. and. The difference is that on more riskier platforms, and we, we assessed riskier platforms by the level of the echo chamber and the lack of conscious moderation, that this cultivated communities where um, narratives of, of hate and violence could be propagated. Um, now on the less riskier platforms, platforms that you're familiar with, Twitter and Facebook, um, there were increasing attempts to moderate and protect people against that, or at least highlight alternative discourses 
um, to individuals who are engaging that kind of communication. And finally, what has recent research identified in the change to extremism trends since the pandemic? That's a really interesting question. I would say that our report was pre-pandemic, but we highlighted a number of trends that other researchers who are doing research in the pandemic have highlighted. So the rise of conspiracy theory. Conspiracy theory is is, uh, is a great partnership of right-wing extremism. Conspiracy theories are all about undermining the the, uh, the the existing system saying that the authority is wrong, that the authority is trying to harm you in some way, that you need to go against the authority, blaming victimization, highlighting another as dangerous and potentially needing to be removed. And so we saw a lot of conspiracy theory and emerging research on Twitter um, has highlighted, a, and on Facebook has highlighted a, a growth in conspiracy theories, narratives, anti-government narratives. Um, and, and these things are dangerous, not necessarily because of violent extremism, but because they pose a threat to democracy. A conspiracy theory like QAnon is anti-democratic at its heart. It is discriminatory at its heart. And therefore, the propagation of those and their spread into our day-to-day um, narratives and communication is, is dangerous. Lisa, this has been so informative. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. That was Macquarie Uni lecturer in terrorism studies, Lisa Waldeck, talking to us about far-right extremism in New South Wales. Up next, we've got Sydney Street Kitchen helper Danny Petkovic on the police's efforts to shut their work down. That's coming up, but first a song. This is Pick Up Your Feelings by Jasmine Sullivan. You're on FBI 94.5. With so many support services closed this year, Sydney's homeless were left to do it tough over Christmas. One Street Kitchen in Martin Place sought to make a difference with their eight days of Christmas campaign. However, in the early days of Boxing Day, police made them stop what they were doing. They were told they didn't have permission to be there despite providing essentials and basic necessities to those in need. We're joined by helper and organiser Danny Pekovic about their fight to continue feeding Sydney's homeless. Hi, Danny. Thanks for your time. Hi there. Thank you. So what is Eight Days of Christmas? So the Sydney Street Kitchen has operated for uh, many years um, as a street kitchen feeding those in need and um, a safe space. Um, And essentially we operate 24-7 providing services to people that, you know, need all sorts of things. Um, during Christmas, um, we set up a full kitchen for eight days and nights. So we're 24-7 um, in Martin Place. Um, this is where we operate um, all year round, two to three nights a week. Um, and the eight days of Christmas is really about uh, having a place for people that have nowhere to go, offering them food and basic amenities like, you know, toiletries and um and, and then, you know, extra things that are all about the festive season, gifts and um, desserts. You know, yesterday we had a beautiful contrib- contribution from someone who made um, pavlovas, which is always, you know, a big hit. Um, just because you are, um, you know, doing it tough doesn't mean you don't want those beautiful things that, you know, are very Australian at Christmas. Yeah, and can you recount what happened at 5am yesterday morning? Uh, yeah, so we set up on um, Christmas Eve, like we always do, and um, prepared for Christmas lunch. Um, we had um, 
hundreds and hundreds of different contributions from people and um, helpers coming in. And then um, we serve Christmas lunch and then Christmas dinner and um, continue to operate through the night. And um, our uh, founder, Lance, was asleep, having a having a nap <laughs> at 5 a.m. And he got woken by the police giving us um, basically an order to move on and pack up under the um, public uh, reserve act because we didn't actually have a permit. Um, so, yeah, we we have uh, spent yesterday trying to work out what we, we had until midday and we spent yesterday trying to work out how we could still continue to support the community that we feed and um, provide blankets and, you know, toiletries, just essential things for. Um, and and not only that, you know, so many helpers right across Sydney um, provide us with food and, um, you know, contribute to the, to the cooking and the kitchen and um, we didn't want that food to go to waste. We know there's people in need. It's really... We're grassroots community and we essentially um, exist because there's a need. Um, you know, we've all got places to be and families, but um, we know that we've got extra, we've got surplus. We're very fortunate. And so we didn't want any of that to go to waste. So we've hired a truck and we've um, paid for parking. And so that's coming out of um, the money that has been given for food um, to be able to continue to operate and to continue to provide um, both essential services and, you know, help the vulnerable. Okay, so what did Lord Mayor Clovermore say about this? Um, well, we did get a response yesterday that she would not support our permit, she would not support the application. Um, essentially, um, her response was that uh, she's given a lot of money to other charities and... Um, you know, like, our response to that is that like, she, we've seen little evidence of it on the street. You know, if the funding was spent effectively, to us it begs the question why the people are still coming to us, why they're still, you know, when we had to pack up yesterday, so we had until midday, and so when we packed up, it looked completely empty, and we were getting messages right across our Facebook group asking, you know, where the food is and um, where people can actually access essential things. Um, you know, during this time, everything closes down and um, our abiding concern is for the people who continue to sleep on the street, they're marginalised and they're unable to otherwise seek services that might be out there for them. Um, and it's really just filling a gap. Um, so it was a bit disappointing that, you know, we're being asked for a permit on the day where we can't possibly get one. Um, a lot of the charities um, that support the homeless, have exemptions. We couldn't find out. We've contacted every minister under the sun to try and find out how we could get that so we could continue to operate. Um, it's a very sort of makeshift operation we have at the moment, but, you know, less than ideal because there's so many people. We've got rosters for every single day of uh, the eight days, so that's Christmas Eve to New Year's Day, just making sure that, you know, people have those essential needs, like it's basically going back to Maslow's hierarchy and making sure those absolute essential human needs are catered for. And how did you pivot your operations to keep supporting those in need? Well, that's the hiring of the truck. So we've got a hire, we've hired a truck and we secured two car spaces that we're paying for um, 
alongside Phillips Street on the corner of Martin Place, and we're just essentially um, operating out of the truck. Um, people are taking the food that was brought to us. We've got a storage unit that we pay for, um, and uh, we've got refrigeration there. So we have essentially got people to take the stuff that we couldn't cook home, we couldn't operate the barbecues, so people are taking it home and bringing it in. It's just really tricky getting a warm feed. You know, no one... No one wants cold sausages and no one wants cold roasts and, you know, so just because people are um, not able to access those things themselves, it doesn't mean they deserve less, you know? So we've had to really rethink how we do that. Um, part of the messaging from the Lord Mayor yesterday was that, you know, she's in line with the Premier's announcement um, at 11am that was about, you know, curbing the Christmas shoppers for Boxing Day, you know, like we couldn't be at either ends of the spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show today and for all your vital work. Oh, thank you. Thanks for highlighting, you know, um, people can get in touch and contribute in so many ways, you know, our ethos is bring what you can and take what you need. And sometimes those that are cooking for us find themselves in, you know, tricky situations, but they know that we're a community and we've got their back and we, we will crowdsource or crowdfund for whatever anyone needs. And we've never, ever accepted we can't do. So I appreciate um, you guys highlighting. Absolutely. Um, it's our pleasure. Sydney Street Kitchen and Safe Space. Yeah. Thank you so much. That was Danny Petkovic from the 24-7 Street Kitchen on how they're fighting to feed Sydney's homeless despite police intervention. Stick around because up next we talk to an LGBT plus youth group from Blacktown set to shut down next year due to a lack of funding. You're on FBI 94.5. It's just past 10.30am and you're listening to Backchat with Chantelle and Vanessa, the flagship news and current affairs show on FBI radio. So Vanessa, what's coming up on the remainder of the show? Well, we'll hear about the police brutality in the Philippines and the latest on Instagram's sex worker ban. But first, there's so much news flying around all the time that it becomes so hard to keep up. So Backchat's producers decided to sum up what you might have missed this week. Enjoy the next instalment of the Backchat, sorry, Backchat Whip Around. Politics with Charles. In Auspol this week, stricter restrictions for Greater Sydney have returned as health authorities wait to see if Boxing Day sales have spread COVID-19 to the CBD from hotspots on the northern beaches. A cap of 10 visitors per house will return until at least Wednesday as New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian recommends Sydney siders celebrate New Year's Eve at home. Federal Resources Minister Dan Tehan has insisted a federal inquiry into Australian banks' policies on climate change will go ahead despite criticism from the opposition and inside the Little Party. And that's Ozpol. World News with Eamon. What's making news around the world this week? Well, it took over 1,600 days and three British Prime Ministers, but a Brexit deal has finally been struck between the teams of Boris Johnson and EU Commissioner Ursula von der Leyen. This just a week before the December 31st cutoff would have thrown everything into chaos. Moving into the States now and downtown Nashville, that's been rocked by a Christmas morning explosion where an RV was blaring warning messages uh, 15 minutes beforehand. And while we're in the States, Donald Trump, he's gone on a pardoning spree of 49 people over the last few days. BIPOC News with Sana. This week in BIPOC News, the Tamil Biloela family have spent yet another holiday season in detention on Christmas Island. 
A bill has been introduced into Parliament to ban the import of products into Australia made in the Xinjiang region of China, potentially by Uyghur people held in slave-like conditions. In Ohio, America, police have killed yet another unarmed black man, 47-year-old Andre Maurice Hill. Now back to Australia, in Villawood Detention Centre, 29-year-old detainee Mohammed, a man from Malaysia, has passed away. Sports by Beck. In cricket, day one of the Boxing Day Test match in Melbourne's MCG has Team India happy as they finish on one for 36. The Boxing Day Test match also paid respects to the late Dino Jones. Trouble for the A-League as many games are being postponed or cancelled due to the surge of COVID-19 cases in Sydney, as well as the restrictions being brought up. It has been confirmed that Australian golfer Greg Norman has been hospitalised on Christmas Day due to COVID-19. Environment with Nikki. South Australia will become the first state in the country to ban single-use plastics, with laws to come into effect from March 2021. A group of farmers in New South Wales have launched a court challenge against a Narrabri coal seam gas project. And lastly, New South Wales will be tripling the size of its feral free zones next year to bring back marsupials previously wiped out by threats such as cats. This is expected to save more than 50 threatened species. Arts and Culture with Mills. Slow week for arts and culture? I'll let you decide. A new AI bot that roasts your Spotify playlist went viral this week, named How Bad Is Your Spotify? It drags the artists and the songs that you play and judges whether or not your listening patterns are ironic. And it's taking everything in me not to read this as a Carrie Bradshaw column, but HBO is once again considering a Sex and the City reboot, except this time without Samantha Jones, played by Kim Cattrall. And finally, Parisians are protesting against theatre closures in France due to COVID lockdown measures. Police have used tear gas and water cannons to disperse the protesters. Entertainment with Vanessa. Ariana Grande has announced that she's engaged to Dalton Gomez, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, who last year left the royal family after Meghan was treated terribly by British press, has won a lawsuit against Splash UK photographers who took photos of their private home. Just a quick trigger warning following last week's news, Shia LaBeouf has now been pulled from the Netflix award consideration following his sexual assault allegations. That was News Roundup of the Week, delivered by Backchat's producer team. Up next, we're discussing the defunding of the Blacktown Youth Services Association next year and what that will mean for the community. FBI. 94.5. So building safe spaces for minorities in Western Sydney where people can seek help and truly be themselves are vital. But recently, the Blacktown Youth Services Association, a not-for-profit queer youth organisation, has now been defunded for the coming year. Jasmine Phillips, the head organiser for the Blacktown Youth Services Association, joins us now to talk more on this issue. Hi Jazz, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Vanessa. Um, It's lovely to speak to you and I'm really, really keen as somebody who's really passionate about the work that we do. It's lovely speaking to you as well. Could you provide a brief history of the Blacktown Youth Services Association and All Out? Yep, absolutely. So um, my partner and I are the project coordinators for All Out, which is a youth engagement and outreach program um, that we run at BISA. So um, we usually just refer to it as BISA because it's a little bit easier. Um, But BISA itself is a youth centre, I guess. um, And it's been operating for over 30 years. Um, It's everything it's 
like a little heart in Blacktown, a little beating heart for young people, essentially. It's not just a drop-in centre or a youth centre. Um, it has a music studio. It provides basic essentials for young people um, who they become aware have been sleeping rough for years. Um, it really is um, such an essential service for young people and they work with the most vulnerable young people um, in Blacktown. Uh, we became involved at BISA a few years ago. They had just uh, been stripped of essentially all of their funding. Um, they had ongoing issues with the criteria that they needed to meet in order to get government funding just didn't match the or align with the work that they were doing. So they knew that if they ran programs the way that they were being asked to run programs, that they wouldn't have the young people that they have there. Um, and we've seen over the few years, um, over the last, you know, however many years, but also in particular over the last two years as they've been on this funding journey without any funding, um, that people want them to be showing X amount of pe young people in employment. Um, and BISA really isn't about that. They're about helping young people ignite their passion for life, helping young people feel supported in their community. Um, so for them that comes first and for them they know that that works because they're the youth centre with the greatest number of young people coming in each year. They're the youth centre who's helping the most vulnerable young people, young people who've been inside, um, you know, coming in and out of the federal, um, sorry, the criminal justice system um, throughout their entire adolescent lives. Um, so with BISA, All Out became essentially a thing because uh, my partner and I were both interested in volunteering for our local community, kind of getting involved in our local community, and we happened to reach out at this particular time where they had just lost all of their funding and all of their programs. So they, we reached out to them and said, you know, do you run any LGBTQ youth groups or anything like that in the area we'd really love to be involved and they invited us into this space and they said we're so excited that you're excited about this space how would you feel about running a program like that and they really have believed in us so much they helped us build everything from the ground up we are now being able to run that program and run that project um, on you know a monthly or even more often basis when we obviously can due to COVID restrictions um, but really we're really interwoven and interconnected there um, both Britt and I are volunteers there we're not paid or anything um, and BICER itself has its own board and its own people who who are the head organisers and run there um, but we would not be able to do the work that we do without BISA. And why is the current funding for BISA under threat right now? Yeah, absolutely. So um, essentially two years ago, um, they had come to a point where they had realised that if they were going to re-affiliate and regain the government funding for the next year, you know, that process of re um uploading all of your documentation and um, reapplying for that funding. Um, they were really being encouraged to stop doing the work that they were doing that they knew that worked and start doing work that they knew didn't work because they had the evidence. They knew that young people weren't interested in the kinds of programs that they were being asked to offer. Um, so they decided against 
re-affiliating um, and reapplying for government funding. Um, this was a very active choice because they knew that already those restrictions had harmed the young people that they were working with um, and had discouraged those young people from going to the centre. Um, and they did attempt to merge with another organisation. Um, they found out that they had you know, differences of opinions. Um, the other organisation was starting to suggest that some young people were too complex for the centre. Um, and vice is, again, just not about that. It's about, okay, this young person is in need and they're coming to me, so we will never turn a young person away. Um, most people who regularly are reaching out to BISA, the average young person there doesn't feel like they can go to other youth centres. You know, for example, if you're a young Aboriginal person in the area, um, if you know that you've had trouble with police or police harassment in the past, why would you go to PCYC? Um, that's nothing against them in particular, but you, we already know that there's those barriers if you have that preconceived preconception and you've had those issues in the past, they don't feel safe going to anywhere else. Um, but yeah, so really BICE's current funding model is under threat because they they couldn't those those criteria that they need to meet to get those grants, it's not and you know, like we were hearing from um, the Sydney Street Kitchen before why are they filling that need and yet not getting the funding? There's that disconnect between the funding and the actual people accessing services that work. We're not seeing that the services that work are getting that funding and for BISA that funding has just run out. They've had all of that, you know, they've been working for two years completely unfunded and now it's not just about, oh, can the youth workers take another pay cut to keep the doors open? They've taken as many pay cuts as they can and it's about keeping the, the doors open, keeping the electricity running and we can't do it anymore. Right, so I guess, what does the future for look like for All Out if you lose BISA? Um, with BISA, you know, my partner and I have had discussions about what we are going to be doing in, in the future and what we can do in the future. Um, at the end of the day, we're so passionate about All Out. It's so important to us as two young people who grew up in the Blacktown area. And both of us have experienced some really horrible homophobia and harassment due to the attitudes in Western Sydney. So regardless of what happens from here, All Out will still exist because it has to. Um, it's our passion project. We love it. We believe in it. And we know that it needs to keep going. We know that it's working. However, BISA really does provide everything for us. They're, they believe in us. They keep us going. You know, the youth workers there are absolutely incredible. They sit down with us. They talk us through funding applications. They talk us through grants. Um, they were the ones to suggest that we do this in the first place and to believe us and believe in us in the first place. Um, they provide the space for us to hold events. They provide materials. They provide support. They've really just everything to us so it would be absolutely massive to lose BISA um, and in addition to that one of the massive things that we aim to do as an organization you know it's part of it is providing that safe space for young people that that opportunity for young people to connect with their community and to feel like they have an LGBTQ community in Blacktown but the other part of it as well is being able to 
talk to young people who aren't part of that community, aren't part of the LGBTQ community, but are part of that local community, and being able to start those conversations about, you know, what are pronouns? Why are pronouns important? How can I help my friend who's just come out to me? All of those things are so key to what we do as well. And if BICE are shut down, then Britt and I wouldn't be there every you know, every week talking to the young people who use BICE regularly and developing that connection and developing that positive attitude towards LGBTQ people. Um, you know, it's a key part of what we do and that we would lose. Absolutely. Jazz, thank you so much for your time and for all your work. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Um, and don't forget that if you do want to learn more about BISA, you can always Google or go to their website, bisa.org.au, to find out how you can help. Absolutely. That was Jasmine Phillips from Youth LGBT Plus Group All Out on how you can support the work that they do. Next up on the show, our producer Rebecca Manibog explains police brutality in the Philippines. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Black Chat, your alternative to talk back. That was police brutality is being exposed all over the world from the Black Lives Matter movement in the States to Indigenous deaths in custody back here in Australia. A recent hashtag shone light on violent police behaviour in the Philippines, with activists around the world mourning the death of two citizens at the hands of an off-duty officer. Backchat producer Rebecca Manibog spoke to the Philippines reporter from the Washington Post about the hashtag Stop the Killings. Warning. This story will discuss drugs, guns, police brutality and murder. Listen at your own discretion. The Philippines is a land of many treasures. From the beautiful culture, the white sandy beaches, and discos that go all night long, it's hard to believe that my home country, the land of which some of my ancestors have been on since the beginning of time, are facing not only the viral pandemic, but are in the middle of a war against those who are supposed to be there to serve and protect. It's within my heaviest heart to report that recently, a viral video surfaced all over social media depicting the execution of two innocent civilians, Sonia Gregorio and her son, Frank Anthony, by an off-duty police officer. The Gregorio's deaths, which happened in the province of Tarlac, sparked an online wildfire with hashtag StopTheKillings taking over Twitter feeds and the main hashtag page as many online activists protest against the Philippine police. Although the police officer was off-duty, Many online activists are saying that the Gregorios were possible victims of police brutality, who died in the hands of an officer who felt empowered behind a gun. It has been reported that the amount of police-related casualties in the fields has risen since the beginning of Rodrigo Duterte's war against drugs. In late 2016, it has been recorded that 9,000 deaths were in relation to this war and were mostly in the poorest areas of Manila. To talk about the current state of distrust between civilians and police is Washington Post Philippines reporter Regine Cabato. Regine, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for asking and thanks for having me on the show. Can you tell our audience what is happening in the Philippines right now? Apart from being in the throes of a pandemic, is currently reeling at least in the most recent days, from uh, shooting, a police shooting that has, you know, been dominant on the headlines recently. And you might have heard of it, Rebecca. This is the most recent in a string 
of police killings that have been taking place since 2016 and since populist president Rodrigo Duterte has risen to power. The Philippines is still going through um, the war on drugs, which is a flagship program of the president and which has been a very bloody anti-illegal drug campaign that has left thousands dead. The most recent case in particular was not a drug-related one, but it was essentially a police killing that was caught on tape. And critics of the president and human rights advocates have been saying that this particular case is a very visual example and demonstration of the kind of culture of violence that currently um, is present in the Philippines. According to the Human Rights Watch, police-related deaths went up by 50% since the start of the pandemic. Why do you think this is so? For context, the Philippines has had one of the longest and possibly one of the most iron-fisted implementations of COVID-19 lockdown. But we've been on lockdown since March this year, and since then there has been a long-running list of human rights abuse allegations. This particular figure from the Human Rights Watch just basically reflects that. Like We've also seen that the war on drugs did not stop under the pandemic. So because the context of a COVID lockdown um, has become more restrictive, then that kind of gives people in power or authorities in power especially those who are armed, kind of more um, leeway, I would suppose, to move around. Throughout Duterte's reign, he has mentioned his approval for gun use for both civilians and police. Do you think this contributes to police brutality? I'm glad that you, you mentioned that, Rebecca, because the official line of Malacanang Palace, the office of the president, I would definitely discount this particular history of statements from the president. You're right, the president does have a long um, history of statements saying that, you know, police are free to shoot people, he will cover them up, just make sure that it's warranted, so to speak. He had things like this before. And the trouble is that, you know, of course, on a case-to-case basis, these things and these statistics get, get murkier when, when they're on the ground. So a lot of human rights advocates, a lot of people who have been watching the drug war and its development and the service policy would definitely say that the president is an enabler of this sort of culture. The Philippine National Police itself has already recorded almost 6,000 killings in its anti-drug operations alone from the time the drug war was launched in around 2016 to September this year. But ever since then, there's been an even murkier number of killings and murders, sometimes done by mass vigilantes, assassins, and often these types of killings are classified as deaths or homicides under investigation, quote-unquote. But overall, human rights organizations would estimate that killings under the Turkish term are in the 20,000 to 30, as in there have been 20,000 to 30,000 killings, roughly, according to Watchdog. So definitely there is a culture of impunity that has somewhat been exacerbated by the Trump war. The Gregorio's deaths have sparked the hashtag Stop the Killings all over Twitter. Do you think that this form of online activism will help? to say because every time there is a high-profile killing like this, the hashtags come up again. And then, you know, they die down. One thing that we do know, even though a lot of Filipinos are online, even though a lot of Filipinos are, like, a very avid social media users, we, we know that Twitter is pretty much an echo chamber. And people who are critics as well of the president are also, to a certain extent, 
um, stuck in their own echo chambers online because of the way social media is structured. It's very unclear as to whether or not these hashtags will actually have any impact at all. The Philippines has a process of red tagging. Do you think that this form of red tagging will impact people's voices as well as the voices of Filipinos in the diaspora? According to left-leaning organizations, there have been a number of killings as well of activists who range, whose advocacies range from urban housing to human rights and all that. So the fear is real here in the Philippines. So there have been like quite a few cases come to mind that have all just taken place. And is there ways that we could help the Gregorio family or those who are suffering from the war on drugs in the fields? That's a good question, but I'm not sure who the point person would be for the Gregorio family in particular. But there are lots of non-government organizations who, which document basically and give assistance to victims of the drug war. There are a bunch. People want to stay away from the partisan politics of it all. They can also consider donating to um, church organizations, which are also concentrated, or church programs, which are also concentrated on families that could be left behind. Thank you for your time, Regine. Thank you for having me. That was our producer, Rebecca Manebog, investigating police brutality in the Philippines. We also have an update, another killing that happened with two drug dealers recently in the province of Cebu, also caught on tape. Stick around because next we're discussing how Instagram's community guidelines are stripping sex workers of their online presence. You're listening to FBI 94.5. Updates to Instagram's community guidelines are making it harder for sex workers to promote their livelihood. Anything from sexually suggestive emojis to even a club in the background of a picture can lead to their accounts being shadow banned. Last weekend, sex workers and allies across the world boycotted the app in protest. Here to discuss how damaging Instagram's new rule is for the industry is former sex worker Billy Blue. Hi Billy, thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me. How are we? Good. So, Billy, could you briefly give us a rundown of the recent changes to the Instagram policies? Okay, so the new Instagram policies, um, they're not really anything new, particularly around nudity, uh, but they've got some new clauses that particularly target uh, sexual solicitation on their platform. So, basically, any kind of profile that enables or directs followers um, that are obtaining, obtaining sexual services. Um, so they say that this is to ensure content's appropriate for, for everybody, including young people. Um, but not only for sex workers is this a problem, this also makes it hard to differentiate between sex and non-sex work on Instagram, um, such as things like pole dancing um, and also sex industry-related artwork. Um, my, one of my favourite profiles is, is, uh, is Exotic Cancer, um, and I know she's been shadow banned a couple of times uh, recently due to her artwork um so it's not just affecting sex workers it's also affecting um anybody that has anything to do um with sex work in general and as an ex-sex worker yourself did you find instagram to be an important aspect of your work oh absolutely so um instagram's important for sex workers oh in my experience for two different reasons so we can use it as a promotional tool to funnel people into our paid services such as um campsites um, and OnlyFans, as everybody would know, even clubs that we work at, um, you know, we can tell our clients that we're going to be there at a certain night and to come along um, and see us. Uh, it can also be used as a platform that clients can pay to follow um, for exclusive and live daily content, which we don't 
usually get um, in things such as CAM. You have to be there at a specific time. So this way we can update our clients throughout the day as to what we're up to. And it's a bit more of a personal, um, a bit more of a personal follow. Um, but the, the new guidelines confuse me because sex workers, particularly on channels like Instagram, they keep their nudity on their paid channels. So Instagram is mostly used to, to funnel people into our other online sites. Um, so, you know, I know a lot of sex workers that actually spend a lot of time trying to um, trying to keep up with the updated rules. Um, but now you don't even need to show a bit of skin to be shut down. You just need to suggest that you might be getting paid to do something that they deem sexual um, to have your account shut down. Right. So sex workers already experience a, disprop- a disproportionate amount of stigma for the work. For example, pole dancing. How does this feed into that narrative? Okay, so this is just Instagram trying to dictate to the public once again who's worthy of our attention and who isn't. Um, so they know they have the power to influence what people see. Um, they're the most well, they're one of the most popular app services for visual advertising. So to be successful, um, as much as you know, sex workers hate to admit it, we need to utilise the service to be successful and um, compete just like any other business. Um, so sex workers are smart, hardworking, business-minded people um, and particularly during COVID, we're holding many parts of the community together um, and we're important for people's mental health. You know, we're integral in the disabled community. We help people explore their sexuality, you know, so they in a judgment-free environment. We help raise money for bushfire relief. Um, you know, and Instagram want to make it harder for people to access our services because somehow our chosen profession is vulgar and should be, you know, left in the back pages. Um, and when it comes to things like like pole dancing, that, that again, they're trying to divide us into um, who's sinful and who's pure. Um, but it also makes the pole dancing community feel like they have to differentiate between who's who. Um, you know, and in my opinion, if you're on a poll on Instagram, you're on a poll on Instagram. Whether you're a stripper or whether you're an athlete, you know, why are we allowing Instagram to tell us who is more worthy? Um, you know, again, it's a typical right-wing tactic to divide us. Um, if you're on a poll, the interpretation of that action is in the eyes of the viewer. So whether people want to admit that or not, um, you know, no matter why you're on that poll, you're still deserving of recognition and respect for your talent no matter what. So, um yeah, it's just a divide and conquer tactic, I think. You know, who's pure, who's sinful. Um, and, it's, you know, we don't need that in our community. We're, bus- we're business people just like everybody else. Absolutely. Finally, Billy, what's one way that our listeners can pull up and show their support? Um, honestly, just talk openly about sex work. Um, talk about it like it's the most normal thing in the world because it is. Um, you know, when you, when you think about it, like think about how, what it takes to do a job like sex work and how much easier it would be with an open dialogue in the community, um, you know, just with us having that support and encouragement. Like sex work is a professional career that deals with corners of the community that everybody else ignores. Um, and I believe that they're up there with all the other heroes in the community. So we need to make them feel as liberated and accepted. And with that support behind us, it's easier for us to stand up to conservative bullies like Instagram and get them to reconsider their guidelines. Definitely. Billy, thank you so much for speaking with us today. That's okay. It's my pleasure. Thank you, girls, for all the hard work you do. Absolutely. That was former <laughs> sex worker Billy Blue, who joined us to discuss how new changes to Instagram's rules are targeting sex workers. You're an FBI, 94.5. 
And that's all we have time for on the show today. Thank you so much to our guests, Danny Petkovic, Alison Jow, Jan Fran, Lisa Waldeck, Jasmine Phillips, and Billy Blue. This episode of Backchat was brought to you by Eamon Snow, Millie Roberts, Rebecca Manibog, and Tanita Razagi. We've got one more song up our sleeve, another original by Sydney musician Nick Harriet. This musical is about the Northern Beaches cluster. We'll also post the music video soon, so keep an eye out on our Instagram. Catch you next week and Happy New Year to all our lovely listeners. Well, I know a place where you shouldn't go Where the COVID cases aren't so low And the 